So you remember the context from this morning, and I'll be uh, simply carrying on. I'm at verse 19. So just to remind you, verses 19 through 23 here, it says, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show himself greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. All right, so verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Again, this is not a statement of actual ability of the divinity of Christ. This is a statement about the fact that he is not authorized. Christ in his humanity is not authorized to do anything except what has been shown to him, what has been revealed to him. That is a statement of the regulative principle applied to Christ. So there, it would be difficult to have a more clear statement of the regulated principle. And Christ is above us, he is higher than us, and if he is not to act without authorization, then none of us are. But what he sees the Father do, that's what he does. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. That, that doing there is doing as the example. So in other words, this is the decree of God, what he is to do, and so that's what's given in that text. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. Shows him all things that he himself does is a statement of God revealing his whole counsel to Christ in his human nature. And he will show him greater works than these. So there are greater things that will be done than his interpretation of the Sabbath law. There are greater things that will be done than him raising that man from his lameness, from his... Uh, infirmity why so that you will marvel for as the father raises the dead and gives life to them even so the son gives life to whom he will okay so the son gives life to whom he will everyone the son wants to give life to everyone he wills to give life to he does give life to now, everybody who's ever been conceived, every human and every angel that's ever been created was given life in one sense by the Son. Everyone who is given spiritual life is given life by the Son. And everyone who is resurrected is resurrected by the Son. Okay, so we have those types of life, all of those kinds of life are all at the discretion of the Son. They are sovereignly given out by him. Verse 24, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. So what is the motive by which the Father gave all authority to the Son? The Father gave all authority to the Son out of a motive of the honor of the Son. It is for the glory of the Son. This is a part of the intra-Trinitarian covenant. So this is, because of the agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
the Father gives authority to the Son so that the Son will be glorified as God, equal with the Father. So that might sound odd. Think about it for a second. The Father, who is equal with the Son, gave authority to his equal. <coughs> How did the Father give, get authority to do that? The agreement of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to have the Father have a place of higher authority. These are the elements of the intra-Trinitarian covenant. It sounds very high. It sounds like this thing beyond human understanding. Who can understand the interactions of the members of the Trinity? This is the kind of pious nonsense that gets spoken sometimes by people. I'll tell you who can understand it. Anybody that has the literacy level capable of reading John 5, verse 21, and John 5, verse 22, and John 5, verse 23. That's who can understand it. The intertrinitarian covenant is revealed. It is revealed for us to understand it. It is not something that was hidden. It was given for us to understand. Why? Because God's purpose is to glorify himself in creation and in redemption. To glorify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They do so to each other. And if we pretend that we cannot understand these things, we are pretending that God cannot accomplish his purpose. God glorifies himself by causing us to understand The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So the economic trinity, the covenantal agreement of the roles of the trinity, makes it so that the equal honor due to each member is given more fully. In the same way, human honor relationships even though we are of equal essence, children are of equal essence with their parents, servants are of equal met, uh, essence with their masters, wives are of equal essence with their husbands, citizens and magistrates, congregants and church officers, all are of equal essence. And yet, there's a way in which the honor of each is increased by giving honor according to station. So this is true in the created order, amongst equals by essence, and this is true in the divine order of the uncreated. The roles give greater honor. And when honor is given by people in their roles, it results in higher honor for all. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. If you honor anything on the same level that you honor God, and that thing is not God, You've committed idolatry. This text is a text that demonstrates the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father judges no one, but commits all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Just as they honor the Father. Just as they honor the Father. The honor is the same. It is the same as the honor to the Father. And if that's the case, then it is the honor owed to divinity. That text demonstrates the equal glory of the Son with the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
That demonstrates the unity of the two. It demonstrates the rejection of the Messiah and who is sent as a rejection of the God who sent him, rejection of the Father. And so there are other texts that are similar. For example, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me, right? that kind of thing. So you can't pretend to be honoring God or honoring the God of the Old Testament or whatever and reject Christ. You don't honor God. You don't honor the Father unless you honor Christ. Verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, this idea of passing from death into life, remember back up at verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so, the Son gives life to whom he will. The Son gives life to whom he will. Okay? So everyone who passes from death into life is somebody who's passed from death into life because the Son gave them life. So this is the sovereignty of God in regeneration. This is irresistible grace. This is the idea that salvation is by grace alone. And how does that occur? By the gift of faith alone. Faith is the alone instrument of justification. Faith is itself life. Faith by itself is life. And it causes works. Now, look at verse 24. It says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. The belief itself is the life. If you have the belief, you have the life. And shall not come into judgment. Well, if Jesus has been given all judgment, if all judgment's been committed unto him, and he's telling you, everyone who has the belief, who has the faith, will not come into judgment, then you have the judge's instructions of the basis by which he's going to say, this is a legitimate instrument of justification, or this is not. This, this plainly teaches us justification by faith alone, and it also plainly teaches us that faith is a gift of God, a gift of Christ. He is the author of our faith. And if you have faith, you've passed from death into life. So faith is everlasting life. It keeps us from judgment. It's the instrument of justification. And it's a gift. Verse 25, most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Okay. The hour is coming and now is. Is he talking about the time of the general resurrection? If he just said the time is coming, sure. Now is? Did we miss the general resurrection? The full preterists right? Okay, so 
this text is teaching us that this time is the time when the resurrection that's being talked about is happening. He's talking about the spiritual resurrection at that particular text. He is saying, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So there's those who hear and believe. There are also those who hear and do not believe. That's one sense of hearing. Remember we talked about rhetorical paradox earlier? That there's this idea that when you have rhetorical paradox, it helps to reveal multiple senses of a term. So there are those who hear and don't believe, and there are those who hear and believe. Now the word hearing is being used in a different way. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So those who hear will believe. This is equating this internal hearing, the hearing of the mind, the hearing of the internal man, versus the hearing with the physical ear. Not all who hear with the physical ear believe. Not all who hear with the physical ear hear with the inward man. And so we differentiate the external call with the internal call, the effectual call. So you see the relationship between the doctrine of the effectual calling and the idea of irresistible grace. Okay? Effectual calling is what you'll see in the Shorter Catechism. What is effectual calling? That's the question. Effectual calling <coughs> is the work of the Holy Spirit to cause people to believe. That's irresistible grace. So the doctrine of irresistible grace in Tulip relates to effectual calling. <coughs> and this is related to this idea of hearing. You can hear with the external ear without hearing with the internal man. You find that language in Isaiah, hearing they will not hear. Hearing they will not hear. So this is a common rhetorical play in the scriptures. To talk about those who hear but don't hear, or to talk about the hearing that is the inward hearing. But most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Okay, so the gift of life, so regeneration, the effectual calling is the irresistible grace of God regenerating. In other words, resurrecting the soul, the giving of life. They will live. It's causal. Those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Well, in Christ's divinity, he has life in himself. But there's this idea of the authority of Christ as the mediator. And in his mediatorial kingship, he has the authority to grant life. It's in his gift. He has soul power to give it. And so that power to give life, Christ has the power to give life. Verse 27, and has given him authority to execute judgment also. So he gives life, and the ones he doesn't give life to, he judges as guilty. And the ones he does give life to, he judges as righteous. Because he is the son of man. And that son of man language is a reference, especially back to Daniel, about the, the messianic God-man. He is God and man. And he's called the son of man because it emphasizes the fact that he is the God who 
has humanity. And so he is the son of man because he is weird in his divinity. He is distinct from the other members of the Trinity in that he and he alone was incarnate. The Father was not incarnate. The Spirit was not incarnate. Jesus is the son of man. Jesus is the member of the Trinity who has humanity. And so he's called the son of man. The son of man should remind you that this is the one person of the Trinity who has humanity. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this. That's actually, back to 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. This, because he is the son of man, is about his theanthropic mediator role. Okay? The, the theanthropic, it's God, theos, and, and anthropos, man. Okay? So he is the God-man mediator. And he's, as a mediator, he is the son of man, this, this Messiah, this, this mediator. He's been given authority to execute judgment that he might be a mediator who is like us in nature and yet also God. And so there is this way in which God gets all the glory in the mediatorial work of Christ. So that's the... Uh, doctrine of Solus Christus there, right? We have this idea of Christ as the sole mediator, the, the son of man, the distinctive man, and the distinctive person of the Trinity. 28. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in their graves will hear his voice. Notice the other one said, the hour is coming and now is. This one didn't say and now is. No, now is. No, now is. These are two different times. These are two different times. So the time of Christ's work on earth began a time in which there was an increase of the rate of pulling in of people to everlasting life. And we are in the acceleration phase of that. And that acceleration phase makes it so that more and more are being pulled in the number of souls that are on the earth right now. When I was a kid, it was a big deal when we got to 5 billion people. There's over 8 billion people on the planet. The rate at which people are being saved, the rate at which people are going to hell, both of them are astounding. There are many who are hearing the voice. There are many that are hearing and not hearing and there are many who hear no preached word at all. On the day when Christ returns, we will leave that period when the voice is going out and causing the world to be taken out of curse and to blessedness. What we will find is that there is an hour when Christ will caused by the power of his voice for all to be resurrected. They will come forth from the grave. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. 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 With damnation. You could say with damnation. Saying there will be curse on these people. An increase of curse. Those who are raised to the resurrection of life will go from a blessedness where there had been much reduced curse to a total removal of curse 
Those who were already dead and were in paradise, they had a total removal of curse already. Now they're restored to their bodies. And those who were dead and were in torment will now be raised to increase torment. Those who were alive at the time of the return of Christ will be given into immortal form, and they will suffer increased curse. So there is this great finality, both to death and to the resurrection. Verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. The judgment of Christ is according to what is revealed by the Father. The action of Christ is according to what is revealed by the Father. And my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. The only way that we can know that any action that we take is righteous is if it is based upon the revealed will of heaven. The same was true for Christ and his humanity. Now, Go to verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, that, that true doesn't mean that if he, if he professes that, you know, he said, for example, earlier on in chapter 4, he said, I am the Christ, right? Was he testifying about himself and was it false? So when he says he is the Christ, does it mean he's not the Christ? You know, no, this is, this is not like the you know, opposite day interpretation of Jesus. What this is, is a statement that if I testify of myself, then in a court of law, my attestation is not to be assumed to be true. However, there's another who bears witness of me. Oh, so now there's validity in court. And I know that the witness which he witnesses, which he witnesses of me is true. Well, who is it? Verse 33. You have sent to John... And he is borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man. But I say these things that you may be saved. So the first witness he points to is John. John the Baptist. John the Baptizer. And so John the Baptizer is a witness to who Christ is. And everybody should be real impressed with that. And they go, wow, yeah, yeah, that's right. He's a big prophet, big deal. But he's a man. John was a man. He was a big, big man. But he's not God. And so why care about his testimony? He was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Now you guys, you liked John for a while, and then you abandoned John. Now you try to dismiss John. He was a blazing light, and you know it calling shame on them. He's trying to bring them to shame. But I have a greater witness than John's. You know, this is the way, but wait, there's more. Like Jesus is an excellent salesman. And people, you know, people will say, oh, you know, preachers aren't, shouldn't be salesmen. Jesus wasn't a salesman. Yes, they ought to be, and yes, he was. The skill of persuasion, the ability to present. Jesus converts anybody he wants to. He wants to be a one who buys what he's selling, buying wisdom. He'll make you buy. He gives it to whom he will. But he also magnificently and sovereignly displays excellent salesmanship 
and rejection. Right? Think about this. He predestines people to hear the best pitches and to reject them. And so, he was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given to me, the very works that I do, bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. You have the law, and you have the fact that God has commanded these things to be done, and I do them. The fulfillment of all of these works, in accordance with the law, testifies to my work as Christ. That's what he's saying. So in other words, the works that the Father gives, the works that are commanded in the Word, the works that Jesus does, right? the regulated principle attests to Jesus. John, the Baptist, attested to Jesus. Jesus already attested to himself, but that's not sufficient for the court of law. But John and the works do. And the works is the second, test, uh, second witness. James isn't the only book of the Bible that teaches that your works are a second witness. John does, right here. Verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Now, the hearing of the voice, there was a hearing of the voice of God with the physical ears when Jesus was baptized. There was a hearing of the voice of God at Mount Sinai. Is he saying that nobody at any time has ever heard the voice of God? No. But he's saying that you people who are hearing him right now, they have not. Or he's saying that they don't believe. Because earlier on he used hear to mean to believe the word. So it's either you don't believe or you personally haven't heard this voice. So how is it that they have heard the Father? Well, they've heard prophets. They've been able to read the scriptures. And the Father testifies. But the Father testified of Jesus at his baptism. So there's... In other words, now we've got Jesus of himself, John the Baptist, the works that Jesus does, and the Father by his very voice. Verse 38, but you do not have his word abiding in you. And that makes me think that that text is interpreting above. That they didn't hear his voice in the sense of they don't believe. Because whom he sent him you do not believe. Okay, so there is the idea that the word is not abiding in them because they don't believe the Son. Verse 39, you search the scriptures, which is the word of the Father, right? It's the word of God. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. The way some people interpret this, you think that what Jesus is saying is, but you don't, right? I've actually, the most frequently I've seen this verse cited is typically in responding to people who believe that the scriptures are inerrant and that belief in the scriptures is necessary for salvation, people quote this back. And a lot of times the people who are defending the fact that you need to believe what God has revealed, they don't really know how to deal with it very well. So, so listen to this. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Jesus isn't denying that. And these are they which testify of me. He's saying, and you're right, you do find life in those, and if you understand them and you find the life, you'll find me. 
There's not a separation here. I've had people quote this to me before and try to say, you know, the, the life isn't in the scriptures, it's in Jesus. There's no contrast. There's no contrast. The scriptures are the mind of Christ. You get Christ. Christ is his mind. He's there in the scriptures. They testify about him. They testify of him. They testify him. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. That's the right place. And they testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you have life, that you may have life. People will quote verse 40 as though Jesus didn't say all the stuff before verse 40 sometimes. See, they don't have life because they weren't willing. They didn't choose. And so it's free will. It's, it's free will. If they had been willing, then they could have had it. Well, sure, but you know why they weren't willing? Because the son didn't will to give them life. I do not receive honor from men. He doesn't receive the testimony of men. He doesn't receive honor from men. John the Baptist is only to be listened to not because he's a man, but because he's a prophet. Jesus should be listened to not because he's a man, but because he's the God-man who fulfills all the works that the Father gave to him. The Father testified of Christ, and his word is to be believed. His voice had not been heard, and his form had not been seen. The scriptures testify of Christ. The scriptures are the word of God. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you'll receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another? And do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus compares receiving honor from men with receiving honor from God. Honor from men is worthless. It is a vain thing. It passes away. Men wither like grass, and their honor is even more fickle. The honor that comes from God is everlasting. He is an everlasting God, and the honor he gives is an everlasting weight of glory. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. They don't have the love of God in them. Now, this is an important point in theology. Historically, it has been very important to differentiate love from faith. Okay? Why? Because love is obedience to the law. Right? And when you equate love and faith, you make faith into obedience to the law. 
But at the same time, the scriptures talk about faith and love sometimes in an interchangeable way or in a causal way. And for example, you even have Jonathan Edwards in his Religious Affections talking about love in a way where he equates it to faith. And so you can, in a technical way, make them equivalent. Here is how. The love of God is valuing God highly. If you know who God is, you're going to see him as highly valuable. Therefore, faith is the love of God. You're seeing him as valuable. When you know who God really is, you see him as the highest good, the most valuable thing. That's a type of love. But that is the part of love, that is the root of love. And there's all these acts of love that occur, and there's consistency of love that's required. When we talk about the love that's required of us, it requires a perfect love, a perfect obedience. And if we view faith as love, typically we're viewing it in terms of this idea of our love toward God, which if it's perfect, is going to manifest itself in perfect words and perfect works. So, the tendency in theology in the Middle Ages was to equate faith with love and to emphasize the need for a perfect love. And so the idea was that the love of God is a love that looks upon the loveliness of the church and saves it. And the Augustinian position has always been the love of God is a love that causes the church to become lovely. But is the becoming lovely the basis of justification? No. It is the faith itself is also not the basis of justification. And when you focus on the love element, you start to think about the worthiness of the faith or the worthiness of the love. There's a temptation there. And we need to remember it is Christ's work that is the basis. It's the thing that's looked upon as the meritorious thing that makes it righteous or just for God to forgive us and to count us as righteous. So faith and love, we need to understand the definitions that love is obedience to the law, that we can talk about love as just valuing a thing. In that second sense, faith is love, but in the first sense, it is not. You need to know the difference between those. And that is something that you find, especially amongst those when you find sophisticated wolves that want to teach a faith and works doctrine, they will talk in ways that will make it so that anyone who's not a sophisticated hearer would plainly think they're teaching justification by faith and works. But a sophisticated reformed ear could find ways of making it orthodox. These are the most dangerous and adroit heretics. They avoid being caught, but they make sure that no sheep gets away alive. Think about the level of monstrosity that has to exist for a man to preach so skillfully as to make unsophisticated people believe in justification by faith and works, but to make sure that reformed people can't catch him or have a very hard time catching him. And this is something, many of you think I'm talking about a particular situation right now. I am talking to you about dozens of books and preachers 
and people all over the place. This is the disease in the Reformed Church. You can find it in John MacArthur's preaching, John Piper's preaching. You can find it in almost every big name. It's, it's this horrifying thing that you find it there. And at the same time, you can find the purity. I, I've heard sermons from John MacArthur where the, the gospel was preached magnificently. But if you go read the gospel according to Jesus and the gospel according to the apostles, you're going to find horrifying heresy. John Piper, I've heard magnificent sermons and teaching on imputation. And yet, if you read Future Grace or what the gospel where Jesus demands of the world, you will find horrifying doctrine. So, these things, this mixing of law and gospel, of faith and works, and making it hard to know what these things are. That's why you, you need to know the right definitions of things. And when things sound fishier and clear, you have to push on it. So verse 42, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. Right? They, don't, they don't have faith, they don't have life, they don't have the love of God in them. And the love of God, faith is the first act of the love of God, and it is the source of all of the love of God. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. But there's the hypocrisy. The honor of men is carried about more, right? Does this guy have good credentials? Does this guy come and say, oh, look, I'm, I'm good? So do you respect the gift in the other person? Do you respect what other men say more? Or do you care about the testimony of God? And what the testimony of God is best tested with is, what does the man preach and what does he do? And so you compare that to the word, and you use that as a witness to evaluate. I come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. There's, I've experienced many times having people not receive me. I'm far less deserving of being received by people than the Lord Jesus Christ is. But I have experienced many times not being received that I come in Christ's name. And Christ being not received, and he comes in the Father's name. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. I see many preachers, many false teachers receiving honors to the skies. But the, oftentimes it is the faithful teachers who are totally ignored. Brian Shortley has written so many excellent books. He's a pastor worthy of great honor. There should be multiple chancellorcies offered to him on a yearly basis that he has to go, no, no, no more. I'm tired of honors. Thank you. <laughs> but that doesn't happen. Instead, he's living off of money he made doing work, pastoring a small church in Prosper, Texas, and everybody badmouths him. You should honor him. There are men like John <coughs> Robbins who everybody hated and everybody just steals his criticisms of Federal Vision. Like, John Robbins did all this pioneering work criticizing Federal Vision in 2002. Nobody was talking about it for a half decade. The, the denominations didn't even think about it until 2005, 2006. And they all just Googled his stuff, looked at what he said, 
attack the things that he didn't, they didn't like about him. They literally name him in a lot of the stuff where they're criticizing things like the definition of saving faith. And then don't cite him for any of the stuff attacking Federal Vision. So the arguments they take oftentimes were there. So John Robbins, Gus Gianello was another mentor of mine, and he was somebody who was unjustly defrocked, just ignored. The guy taught me all sorts of amazing stuff. There are three servants of God, two of them already dead, that I know are examples of men who did not receive the honor that they ought to have been given. It is a very common thing for faithful ministers, faithful men, to preach the truth and to serve and serve and serve and not be honored. Those are three names I want to encourage you to honor. How can you believe and receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? During the end of the English Civil War, there was a restoration of the crown to Charles II. And I have told you before that I want to remind you that one of the things he did pretty early on to the Puritan ministers was called the Great Ejection, where he said, despite having sworn otherwise and despite having signed the National League and Covenant, he required that the Book of Common Prayer be adopted and that if ministers wouldn't apply it, they needed to leave and so there were criminal penalties and all sorts of threats. So in Britain, you had 2,000 Puritan ministers leave their pulpits because they were unwilling to do it. 2,000. And you had in Scotland, 1,000. And so amongst these men, in Scotland, there became a common thing for those ministers. They left and they stopped preaching in the towns. It became illegal for them to preach in towns as they go to the, uh, into the countryside. The, the king decided that that was too easy for them, so he made it so they couldn't do it within some number of miles. I can't remember how many miles it was. Couldn't preach for, it, there was this period of thing. And then he made it illegal throughout the whole country, because just people kept doing it. They kept going. So they had the hedgerow services. And then he sent the dragoons out to kill those people. And yet, their people kept coming. So they were armed, and they were able to defend themselves and to fight even though they would be attacked at those services. That idea of honoring right ministers and maintaining true fellowship and receiving those whom Christ has received, that is honoring the Lord and receiving those who are popular to receive, receiving those who are more widely known, caring more about the honorifics that are given by large institutions or by whatever, the large evangelical institutions are the ones that have given us the hellhole that is modern America. They have failed to defend the truth. They have failed to give a prophetic voice. They have failed to speak the law into the public square. They would not be John the Baptist. They would not say stop sleeping in incest with that woman. They would not say repent and believe. They wouldn't say, no, don't elect women officers. They wouldn't say all the things that needed to be said. And now they won't even say the word sodomy anymore because they're afraid of the idea of calling homosexuality sin and not even calling it sodomy. Right? The 
language of the Bible they're afraid of. And there's this fear now of saying, women, dress modestly. Right? You can tell men, exercise discipline, don't look at porn, and everyone will applaud you from the skies, and there will be a thunder of everybody saying, yes, tell the men to be better. But if you say women dress modestly, the result is that everyone shouts you down as shaming and shaming and shaming. I, this is the culture that we live in. These are the kinds of things that have to be said. There's a call to receive men who will honor God rather than those who seek the honor of men. When we see ministers who strive after the honor of men, we must ask ourselves, how can they believe? How can they believe? How can they believe? Who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. You know what's even less popular than telling women to dress modestly or speaking against homosexuality in the public square? Talking about the first and second and third and fourth commandment. Especially in the public square. Oh, the state ought to only acknowledge the true God. If you don't swear in the name of the God of the Bible, your oath is worthless. In fact, it's worse than oathless. It's idolatry. Don't put your hand in the Bible, raise your right hand. It's not a talisman. Those types of things, even the most fervent of Christian preachers think is nitpicking and silly and unimportant. I want you to see rightly the landscape that we're in. Not to call you to despair. Remember, Jesus Christ sovereignly gives saving faith. Jesus Christ sovereignly sanctifies his people. He causes people to receive him. He causes the dead to rise. He makes people know the truth. How can you believe who receive honor from one another? Well, only if God sovereignly gives the faith. And do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Verse 45. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you. Moses, in whom you trust. It's an interesting word. Trust. How do they trust in Moses? If they trust in Moses, don't they believe in Moses? They believe something about Moses. What are they putting their trust in? They are putting their trust in Moses in the sense that they are looking at the law of Moses and they think they are righteous by the law of Moses. But it's the law of Moses that shows them they are not. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. And so actually believing the gospel that Moses revealed would be also believing in Jesus Christ, believing in the gospel that Jesus Christ reveals. Trusting in Moses is in trusting in the law to fulfill your salvation, to provide you with a righteousness, is not believing the gospel, it's believing something else. And it's a misunderstanding of Moses. And a believing false things about Moses. So you could trust in Moses as your mediator without trusting in Christ, the greater mediator, 
he foreshadowed by <coughs> trusting him as a mediator of the law of a covenant of works. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. They misunderstand Moses, and therefore what they believe about him is wrong. If they understood him properly and believed that, they would believe Christ. There are no Jews who believe Moses and don't believe Jesus and never have been. They either believed in the Christ to come, or after he came when they heard about him, they believed in that specific man, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah. Why? Because if they have life, they will receive Christ. And if they are given that information about Christ being Jesus of Nazareth, they will know that he fulfills the Messiahship prophesied by Moses. If they believe Moses, they would believe Christ. This is a conditional statement. The antecedent, if you believe Moses, is a sufficient condition for what follows, the consequent. You would believe me. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. Because he wrote about me. So if you believe what he wrote, you'll believe me. Verse 47. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So many people in our time want to be New Testament Christians. So many people in our times want to be blue letter or red letter Christians. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This verse is the principal proof text that I want you to have available to deal with anybody who says to you, I believe Jesus, but I don't believe the Old Testament, or I don't believe the other stuff. People want to avoid six-day creation. They want to avoid a literal Adam. They want to avoid a worldwide flood. They are ashamed of Noah. This is the word of God. It is true. And if you do not believe Moses, guess who you don't believe? You do not believe Jesus. Do not kid yourself. Do not lie. Do not pretend. Don't lie to God. Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to other people. If you don't believe Moses, you don't believe Jesus. How could you? That's the question that Jesus asks. How could you? And it's a rhetorical question. You can't. All of this is with the background of the Sabbath discussion. Do you see how it came back around? Who gives to us the initial institution of the Sabbath? Moses. And who taught us about the resting of God? Moses. And so the reason they don't get that you can rest while still doing work is because they don't believe Moses. That's why they don't understand Jesus' teaching about the Sabbath. And that's why they don't understand who Jesus is. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members? Those with speaking rights. <laughs>